0: Good morning church. Am I on here? That... Good. It's good to be with you. I, uh, it's been some years. I've actually had the honor of preaching here at least a couple of times, uh, but it's been a little while. I, I just thank you so much for the incredible heritage and history and had the chance to meet Josh. Your future is bright and strong. The impact that you make here in the Metroplex and around the world is powerful. I, I especially appreciate how you have loved well some of my dearest friends Uh, John and Christy Kimberlin were our students when I was campus minister in Lubbock, Texas. Um, Dear, dear friends of ours, we loved them well for a long time. Scott Sager is a good buddy of mine and spent some time in Nashville area as well as down here. And uh, and I always say this, um, and I mean it, uh, there's very few, uh, very few, less than one handful of people that I can say this about. Jim Barnett is literally one of the best human beings I've ever known in my life. I really mean that. I really mean that. They honor to serve in campus ministry and do a lot of things together and get lost together and do (laughs) do all all sorts of crazy things. But I mean it. He he loves you well and deeply, and uh, and I I, I've said for a long time I want to grow up and be like Jim. But you know the years are tightening up and it's still further and further away. So we'll just enjoy Jim together. I appreciate being with you here. I also um, we we had been uh, we lived in in Lubbock for a long time and then. Moved to Nashville. We lived there about 16 years. We've only been back in the great state of Texas. Wonderful to be back since uh, January. One of the things I told our our kids, I said, one of of the cool things about where we're living, we're only three hours from Dallas, and we will go see a game. I grew up a Cowboy fan in Redskin territory, or now football team commander, whatever they call themselves. And so I've been a Cowboy fan for a long time. And so just so you know, I'm going to bless you, be blessed by it, and then we're kind of heading out to the game. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so uh, yeah, I heard an amen <laughs> that's awesome oh, I love being back in Texas anyways let's hope uh Dak will get it done anyway I shouldn't be bringing that into uh, <laughs> honestly I do appreciate the uh, the honor be able to open up the word of God with you if you have your bibles your devices as my friend says on paper or pixels you can read with me we are in John chapter 17 um Anything Jesus says is powerful, but I think these words are particularly meaningful uh, because the, this is part of the prayer that Jesus prayed the night before he died. Uh, that would be pretty significant words. What would, what would you pray the night before uh, you were going to go home and be with the Father? This is part of what Jesus prays. We often focus on the end. I will do one verse there, but I really want to focus on this first part where he is praying for what he has done and been in the lives of those who have followed him as disciples. We're going to pick up in verse 4, John 17. This is the gospel of our Lord. John 17, verse 4. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. Now I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and the glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one, as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and gave them, kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I'm now coming to you, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy in them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth, your word. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And then verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. This is the gospel of our Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, I pray now as the psalmist did so long ago, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen really do believe you see this in this prayer, but we also know it from life. Life is all about what you're running after. Life is all about what it is that you run for, what it is that you pursue, what is it that you put your time and your resources and your effort into. And figuring out the right pursuit of your life is probably a little trickier than you might think. I've kind of had a metaphorical moment of this early in ministry. I was a lawyer first and God called me into ministry some years ago and I was pretty new at it. I was uh, at, doing campus ministry at the place where we went to law school at the University of Virginia. I was going to um, connect with my students. I like to just kind of do the things they're doing and a young lady named Joy said, why don't you run this race with me? And i I liked running at that point in time, <laughs> all right, and I thought we'd go, it was a short race, I think it was 5k or something, it was a really short race, and I said, great, I'll meet you outside your dorm, and, you know, I'll just call, when, and you come meet me down, we'll go stretch out, take our time, and go and run the race, and so I got down there outside of her dorm, Joy's not there, I wait a few more minutes, Joy's not there, finally call up, and it took a couple times for her to actually answer, she said, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I overslept. And so she's throwing things on, getting ready. I'm waiting outside. By the time she comes down, they're pretty much ready to start the race, and we weren't even at the place where we were supposed to begin. And so to, instead of taking the time to kind of stretch and get ready, we literally had to run to the beginning of the race while they are already going. And so we get there again, really short race. We're thinking, okay, we're not even going to see anybody, but let's just go ahead and do it. And we're jogging. We're going through, and we get to probably about a half mile left in the race in this little course, and I see a runner up ahead. I'm telling you, at that time, I was still in my 20s, and youthful pride kicked in. And I said, Joy, I said, I at least want to beat somebody. Is it all right if I just kind of take off and try to get this guy? And she said, go for it. And I did. And I'm telling you, I put everything into my pursuit of this one runner. And I'm trying, and I'm trying, and I'm pouring into it. And sure enough, a small feeling of triumph hits me as I just pass him right before we get to the finish line. Now, they had an interesting way they were doing, we came in, and and this happened a lot of times, especially on a college campus, they did like giveaways for stuff, and the way that they did that, in this case, when you came across the finish line, they were holding popsicle sticks, and they had the same number on either side of the stick, and you just broke it off, and so they had your number, and you had your number, and we're sitting down there, and we're wiping off, and all that kind of stuff, and they start calling out the prizes, and we see up there that sponsored by Nike or whatever, $200 pair of Nike shoes and gear is the grand prize, and they're throwing out shoelaces and all this other junk and we cannot wait to get to the grand prize. And let's say, I can't remember what my number was, let's say it was number 179, and they get all the way down. Can you guess what number they called out for the grand prize? Does anybody guess? 180. And I'm thinking, man, I poured myself out. I knew I was pursuing that one runner, and here's the thing, I got my goal and missed the greatest prize of all there. And that's kind of funny when it comes to shoes but it's not when it comes to life. Here's one of the things scripture will tell us again and again, and I believe it's reflected in the heart of Jesus's prayer the night before he died. I do not want to spend myself in life, invest myself in all sorts of things, only to get to the end of it all and realize I missed the most important thing. And I'm not just talking about going to heaven when we die. Jesus says in the book of John, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, now and yes, forever. And we pursue all sorts of things in the United States of America where it is absolutely our right to pursue happiness and life and liberty. And is it possible that we expend ourselves for all sorts of things and at the end of the day, we miss out on the race that we were intended to run in this thing called life? What I love about Jesus' prayer here is he gives us some insight and wisdom about how to run the race of our lives well. We can't cover everything here, but I just want to give a couple of takeaways and glimpses that I learned from King Jesus about how it is we live our lives. Uh, The first thing I want to notice here, and I want to start with the end, is in verse 24, I call it the right question. Because a lot of times, I don't know about you, I ask the wrong question and it leads me uh, all sorts of wrong directions because uh, maybe I got good answers, but it was the wrong question. Again, I learned this fairly early on in ministry. In fact, it was my first year. I, I just just kind of moved from being a lawyer to a campus minister as our first year. I don't know if they still do this, Jim, but, but at, at University of Virginia, they would pack all the students into the amphitheater and we had a, a student organization fair. And every different student organization, you would just kind of run all the students through and everybody got to kind of do their pitches and invite you, get on their you know, mailing list and you know send them out the information to get them to be part of your particular student organization. And sure enough, we, we signed up our student uh, campus ministry group to be one of them. And I remember this young lady named April was going through, dressed real dark, You know, she had a nine-inch nails, this was a while ago, nine-inch nails shirt on, and the the black fingernails, if that's you, that's fine. Jesus, take anybody. But she came in, and what I'll never forget is she looked at me, and she looked up, and she said, okay, what's your spiel? And it kind of hit me. Like, I wanted to say, hold on, we're not here selling cars. We're talking about Jesus. But in the moment when she asked me, in that environment, it convicted me because I confess to you now, What I would not do anymore, but I confess to you, I literally trained our students for that moment to talk to other students like they were selling cars. I'm ashamed of this now, but I kid you not. I literally trained our students, listen to what a student says, and start off by asking them, what is it that you want in a ministry in a church? And when they answer it, whatever their answer is, try to find something in our flyer and something in our group that, that meets the need that they are asking for. That's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. And churches try to build big churches based on what do people want? What do we want to do for your kids? What do we want to do in worship? What do we want to do with the preacher? And all that kind of stuff. By the way, those are not unimportant questions. It's just not the question. And there's a better one. You can build build big churches and you can get huge groups of people and you can miss the entire point of being a church of Jesus Christ. Do You catch Jesus' question in verse 24? Jesus says, Father, I want, and I just stopped there for a minute, what about asking this question as a church and as people in this world? Instead of what do I want and what do they want, what about what Jesus wants? What if we started there? As churches and as followers of Jesus, what if we asked Jesus, what do you want? It's interesting what he says. I want those who are following me to be with me where I am. Don't rush past that. It's incredibly powerful. What do you want, Jesus? I want people to be with me where I am. Let's think about that. Where is that? Again, please don't say heaven, because that's not where he was. He didn't say where I'm going to be. He said, I want people to be with me where I am. Where is that? Well, You know, in the book of John, you don't get a chapter into the book without Jesus telling you exactly where he is. It's really, really important when you see this unpacked. It's very powerful for the direction of our lives. John 1:18 says this, no one's ever seen God, but God, the one and only Son, here's the way the NIV used to translate it. There's an updated NIV several years ago. The old NIV said, who is at the Father's side has made him known. No one's ever seen God, but God, the one and only Son, who is at the Father's side has made him known. Not a great translation. The Greek word is kolpos. So you don't have to know Greek to go to heaven. As so Randy Harris says, you just won't understand what he's saying when you get there. Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> Kolpos, what is that word? I love the way the new new NIV translates it this way, who is in closest relationship with the Father, or a literal translation means to be in the lap of the Father. Remember the old song in the bosom of Abraham, in the lap of? In closest relationship, in the arms of the Father, in the lap of the Father, in the embrace of the Father. Jesus says, I want everybody to be with me where I am. Where are you, Jesus? I'm in the culpost post of the Father. By the way, in the book of John, you actually get a visible picture of what that looks like. Because it takes us down to the Last Supper. And as other people have said, in, in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get kind of the institution of the meal that we just did. We call the Last Supper. In John, you get the conversation around the table. And what's interesting, we get the pictures of art throughout history and it's all wrong because we see Jesus and all them sitting in chairs around a table. Does anybody know what the problem with that is? They didn't sit anywhere and they didn't sit around the table. They reclined. Now forgive me, I'm going to get a little undignified here. But this is what they would do. And if you would see originally, they they would recline at the table like this. They'd lean on one side, and you would sit in a circle, and so you're reclining here, and the person who is next to you, you're reclining them. You know what it says in John 13? It says the beloved disciple, who we know is probably uh, the Apostle John who wrote this book. Jesus says, somebody's going to betray me. and They didn't understand who that was, and they, they said to John, John, ask him. Why did they ask John to ask Jesus? Because you know what it says in verse 23? John, who was reclining next to Jesus, guess what word that is? John, who was in the culpos of Jesus, he was in the lap of Jesus, he was in the arms. All he had to do to ask Jesus' question was just lean back. Isn't that beautiful? Where does God want us to be? Sitting in churches and singing songs about him? No, he wants us to be reclining in the arms and the lap of the Father so that when you are in your most desperate moment, the only thing you have to do is lean back, and he's already there. What a powerful picture. What do you want, Jesus? I want my people to be with me right there, that close. And what if the pursuit of our lives were not just to get church right, because we've knocked ourselves out to do that, and I'm all for that, but what if it's about getting the relationship with the one we do church for right, and we know his heart more and more and more and more to the day we take our last breath? That's our pursuit. What's the right question? I want to be so close to you, Father, that I know your heart. What does Paul say? We have the mind of Christ. How? Because we're sitting in his lap. There's lots of ways to do this. I'm just giving you one example of something that's blessed my life recently. If you put that up, it's called the Pause app. If anybody's seen this, John Eldridge has written a lot of books. He's known for doing men's ministry, but most recent one he did. You don't have to read the book. There's a free app out there that takes you 9, 10 minutes a day over the course of 30 days practicing being in the presence of God, giving your heart to God, giving your thoughts to God, giving your mind life to God. I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm just giving you an example of something that's been incredibly powerful in my practice of my presence of God, and I'm telling you, the longer that I do the Christian life, the more I have to come back to say, whether it's this or something else, we know what the pursuit is, God, can you teach me to come close to you? to get to know your heart. And he's wired us all differently. So you're going to connect with him in different ways than I would. My wife connects with God through creation very, very powerfully. I love words and scripture and creation and whatever it is. But here's the invitation. Ask that question. Where does Jesus want you? How do I get closer and closer to the arms of Jesus? Here's what's so amazing, by the way. God, you never exhaust the knowledge of God. There's always an invitation to go a little bit deeper in wonder with God. I was walking the other day. Was, uh, Gosh, weren't you just so glad when fall kind of came finally, right? We just moved this year back to Texas. This was a wonderful summer to move back, I'm just telling you. So we come back. The average in College Station was 103.8 in July. And finally it broke, and we were just, I was just walking on a crisp morning just the other day, and I came around the corner, and I saw my beautiful bride, She was tucked under the back of our minivan because the license plates' lights went out, and if you live in our house, who's going to do that? Dad? No, it will be my wife. I love words and numbers. I can write business contracts if I need to. I can do leadership consulting. She fixes stuff around the house. But I'm telling you, I had this moment. We've been married since college. I had this moment, and I looked at this woman, and I said, thank you, God, for her. She's so still so beautiful to me and she does these crazy things fixing stuff and I in a moment I prayed because we just had two weeks ago incredible moment at our church they had a whole room that they dedicated to uh, couples that have been married for 50 years or more in the center of the room four couples been married 70 years or more and in that moment I said God just give I want to be in that room one day with this woman because every day I wake up and I get to know something more about her now listen to me If that's true for a human being, what about the God who made them? Whatever it is that you stand in awe of, whether it's a great athletic feat, right? Or whether it's a sunset or creation, what about the one who made all of that? Jesus says, My longing is that you get so close to the Father that you live in continual wonder and delight. It's the main thing that I want us to look at. Secondly, what I notice and pull out of this, there is an enemy. There is an enemy, and we need to take him seriously. In verse 12, and then again in verse 15, Jesus' prayer is, Father, I've trained these disciples for the last five years. Please protect them. Protect them by the power of your name. There's an enemy. And I know it's, it's not cool to talk about that. We love talking about dysfunction and all that kind of stuff. and and by the way it doesn't mean the devil made us do anything we are responsible for our lives but i'm telling you there there are spiritual forces at work in this world and there is an entire realm of beings that desire nothing more than to take you away from the right question we just talked about and they'll do anything to get in the way i I think about a couple of different places places and ways that i see the enemies attack just there's a thousand of them but two that i would say that, that just rise to the top for me first of all and and have we ever seen it more in the last couple years number one is division number one is division jesus prays in the last prayer that he prays from beginning to end that the people of god would be one as the father son and holy spirit are one and we haven't done a great job of that and the enemy loves to take us out and one of my deepest prayers for the last season of my ministry, whatever years I've got left, I told the church when I went down there, I'm sold out on two things, discipleship and unity. I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to divide churches, I'm not going to be in leadership, stupid leadership fights anymore. You realize the kind of things that we tend to fight about in churches so often are two questions. Number one, am I getting my way? And number two, who's in charge? Am I getting my way? Who's in charge? What elder's in charge? Are the ministers got part of it? This and that. And are we doing, I'm going to get my song song, or who, who, I'm tired of all that. Jesus literally prayed against it, and the division actually hampers our witness. We know what Jesus says later. Our oneness and unity is actually our witness to the world, and the way the enemy takes us out is division. One of my favorite pictures of the opposite of this, the church that we moved from in, in Tennessee, I remember sitting about right there often, was Miss Christine and a young lady named Jordan. And when I first met him, uh, Christine was, she's still in her 90s. She was 90-something years old, and Jordan was in her 20s. I'll never forget what Miss Christine said one time. They always sat right next to each other, often did. And Miss Christine, in her 90s, said, you know what I love? We sing each other's songs. There are songs that Christine sings that she doesn't like and doesn't understand. Why does she sing them? Because she wants to sit next to Jordan when she does in the body of Christ. And there are songs that Jordan sings that she doesn't understand with old words and weird hymns and all of that. She sings them. Why? Because she wants to sit next to Mr. Christine when she sings it in the body of Christ. Would that we would die for that, that we would pursue that instead of getting our way. The enemy has torn us apart by that question. The other one is any number of ways that we check out. I can confess to you, I have run away from, I've sprinted away from God in my life and he chased me down. But I see and I countered times and times again, I was talking to the officer outside that protects us here today. I've served as a chaplain um, in in the places I've done ministry for a long time and one of the things I noticed when I work with folks that are not church people is that we're the same thing. We just do it different ways. Everybody checks out somehow. It might be drugs, addiction, lust, whatever the case may be. But we all find some way to step out of reality, watch for it. The enemy's been attacking us that way for a long time. I think about a couple that I did a, a marriage for. I did their uh, wedding ceremony one time, and, and then, shoot, it was in probably four, five, six months into that. They came to talk to me, and they said, we've got some problems going on. We're disconnected as a couple, and we're fighting all the time. And I said, it just kind of hit me. I said, just tell me about your typical day. And they said, well, our typical day is we come home, we see each other for about five minutes. He he goes and sits down and gets on a gaming system and games with friends for hours at a time. She goes in the back room and binges Netflix, whatever latest show she's watching. They'll pop out and eat something together and then go back and do their stuff. That's checking out. I tell my sons this. I tell the guys that I work with, play video games, do that. But make some of your battles that you win in the real world, please. We check out any number of ways or, or I think about another guy that I worked with in my chaplaincy for a time incredible businessman huge income he was killing it you know what he was addicted to the next deal that was his rush wasn't drugs or alcohol it was the next deal and he felt like a loser if he didn't have one he felt like he was on top of the world when he got the next deal soon as it happened he had to rush to the next one his wife left him she said you're a great provider you're just not here devil will get us to check out so what does jesus do he says i'm praying that god will protect them and draw them back in so find yourself in community and connect to other people you know one of my favorite small groups in our new church they call themselves joyful confusion it's one of our oldest small groups in church <laughs> they admit it, they made up the name not me they call themselves joyful confusion because sometimes they don't know where they're driving but they love it when they get there Wonderful people, and they connect deeply, because the devil will take us out using these attacks and through isolation and fear. Do not isolate, and isolation can happen by pulling aside on your own. Hear me, isolation can also happen by getting around and hearing echo chambers of what you already think. And I love the joyful confusion group because they disagree and see things differently but they love each other passionately in the name of Jesus and they invite anybody in, even crazy people like us. Last thing I would say in this is finish the work. What does Jesus say? He says finish the work. That's what he prays at the beginning and I think it's astounding, doesn't it? Because Jesus says, Father, I've finished the work you called me to do. Well, hold on what's missing jesus praised this before what he can talk to me what what has he not done yet that's pretty significant work he hadn't gone to the cross yet so what's he talking about finishing the work i think it's everything he just talked about in the next section what work did he finish he poured his life into 12 guys Now he preached to the masses too and he did these kind of gatherings and he was faithful to all of that. He never missed synagogue. He did all of that. But he said, I'm hanging my life on a few people and I'm gonna pour my life into them and they're gonna pour their lives into others and it's gonna reproduce on. I remember uh, Jim asked me to share this part from our our campus ministry seminar that we did this summer. I I remember I used to fret all the time and I still can. I'm, I'm a recovering people pleaser, I'm a recovering perfectionist. So stuff can happen. I'm doing my ministry, and, and attendance goes down, or whatever goes down, and I start, what have I failed in, or whatever. One thing that has sustained me in ministry, one thing that sustains me when I'm in my right mind is doing this. I remember when I was the focus on just a few and pouring in that, everything else is icing on the cake. I had just moved to to Lubbock, Texas, and we had, I don't know, hundreds of college students, we had a bunch of college students there, and I spoke one time downstairs, and we had a divider in the room in the basement there, and one of my elders came up and said, hey, I can't wait for the day, we've got to take this divider down and fill up this back room. And I said, hey, that could be cool. It didn't happen, and I didn't think of it would, but it's, if that happens, it's great. But I said, don't hold me accountable to that. Come to me at the end of the year and ask me what five, six, ten students I poured my life into that year. One of them, by the way, John Kimberly. That's the work Jesus poured His life into. I, I'm still I, I lean into this. I'm still being mentored by a guy. There's a, a guy that's a minister. Uh, it was of a thousand member church. It was blowing and going in California, his biggest church in their area. And he said, "I don't want it to be a mile wide and an inch deep." I'm selling the last years of my ministry out in discipleship. He's coaching me on that right now. One of the things he does is he'll go to churches, especially leaders, but he'll go to churches, especially churches that've been around for a while, and he'll ask this question. Follow me on this. This is Ralph's thing, and I thought it was very convicting. He said, we know the Great Commission, don't we? If you're new to church, don't worry about not knowing this. But those of us who have been in church probably heard it before. What's the Great Commission, generally speaking? Go and make. Can you right now name some of Jesus' disciples? Jesus, We know that's a Great Commission. Name some, just, if you don't mind, just shout out some names of Jesus' disciples. You know some of them. You hear it? We know the Great Commission. We know Jesus' disciples. Here's what he says everywhere when he goes around the world. Now, would you name your disciples, please? No, no, I can tell you my sermons I preach. and where. No, no. Who are your disciples? Who are you pouring your life? Not disciples of you. They're disciples of Jesus. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Who are the few that you're pouring your life into? I don't care if you're 8 or 80 or anywhere in between. Who is coming up after you, your giftedness, whether you're a worship leader or whether you're a minister or whether you're an encourager, whether you're someone that would drive somewhere to see somebody speak because their mother tell them to, whatever it is that you're gifted in doing, what are you passing on to the next generation? I think that's a convicting question. I go to this discipleship conference every year, and one of my heroes in the faith, a guy that wrote, he wrote the book literally on focus on a few years ago, um, by the way, this is a little tool for Bible study. If you, if you want information on this, uh, I'll give you in the interest of time. I'm not going to talk about that. But if you put up this next picture, I want to talk about this guy, Robert Coleman. Have you ever heard of the book, The Master Plan of Evangelism? It's not about evangelism. It's about discipleship. Robert Coleman is the guy that wrote that. It's been republished thousands of times. They always have him do the closing prayer at the discipleship conference I was at two weeks ago. Uh, last year, the year before he was able, nope, no, no, go stay on that first one first. He was able to get to that top step. He's not able to do that now. They he just they barely got him up to the front. But I'm telling you folks, when he starts praying and he starts praying for people to make disciples and to give themselves to the next generation, it's like he's 20 years of old again preaching. Now here's what I love. This is my dream. I put it out here for you. This is the inside of his Bible. This is just since 2000 and something. These are the names of the men that he's investing in for the next generation is discipled and it goes back and it goes back and it goes back so when i moved to texas i got my old my father's old bible and i opened it up and i started writing this in in there is john and christy kimberlin the names of people that god has poured into my life and that i poured into theirs who would be in your bible if there's not somebody it's okay right now just say god can you can you put me on to this because that's the pursuit we're all after Let me end with this, because my my wife and daughter gave me an image from another chaplain about what this looks like, and ultimately, the good news that we have to offer the world doesn't start that way at all, but tell tells the story of a young lady named April, who was in Dallas, Texas, Uh, not Dallas, Texas, she was in Texas, and decided to go um, skydiving one time. In fact, she had done it many times. She'd done it 50 times. I don't get this, why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane, I don't get it, but it's a good rush for her, and she had done that enough, she wanted to try the next thing, and so they were going to do a group dive, and so this is one where they jump out one after another, and they lock arms, and they are holding up there, kind of falling at a controlled 120 miles an hour, April came, and her fiance, they were going to be getting married in just a couple of months, her fiance, Bill, was there on the ground, watching her, and she jumps out. She was the last one in her group to jump out. The first three that went out there uh, did make their lock. One of them missed it and had to go um, land on their own. She went down, almost made the lock, but she ran into one of the other divers at 50 miles an hour, knocked her out. You see the problem, right? She can't open her chute. So they're falling at a controlled 120 miles an hour. She is hurtling at 160 miles an hour, falling to her death. Her fiancé is saying, somebody do something, but there's nothing that they can do because they're falling like this and she is falling literally to her death in that moment. This is a tragic story, but as the chaplain pointed out, Maybe we might think it's not so tragic just because it's so rare. But he said it's not rare at all. Because we know people are hurtling to their death in every sense of that word, in their pain, every single day. And they're, if they even knew what we had to offer, the world's around there saying, somebody do something that has an answer to this. I want to say, man, if the church of Jesus Christ would just pursue Jesus first, and what Jesus cared about, not politics, not comfort, not the latest show on Sunday morning, if we just pursued Jesus, the world would be shocked. If we just sold out to actually pursue Jesus and what he cared about, the world would be shocked. Just like those three divers were shocked when they saw something just hurtle past them you might say hold on she was the last diver out no she was the last diver in her group out there's always one more they call them the jump master what's he going to do when she's falling 160 miles an hour he would have had to get to speeds of 200 miles an hour or more to be able to reach her but you can actually do that it's called a no lift dive you put your legs together your arms by your side you tuck your chin down towards the dirt and they say you can possibly reach speeds of almost 300 miles an hour. So he's going after her, and they all begin to cheer, go get her, go get her. 20 seconds from impact on the ground, and they start thinking, oh no, this isn't going to work. And you might think 20 seconds, that's a long time, but think about what he's got to do. He's got to get to her, get her upright, pull her cord, push her away from him, and pull his cord before impact. 20 seconds is not a long time. So some of them at 20 seconds start saying, pull up, pull up. He doesn't pull up. Fifteen seconds. Now everybody on the ground is saying, pull up, pull up. He doesn't pull up. He dives even harder. Ten seconds before impact, he reaches April. Pulls her up, pushes the cord, pushes her way. Everybody on the ground heard what he said. There's your chance. Every jump master keeps a logbook. The dives that they do. Eight words in his entry that day. Read exactly the way he said it. Eight words. Pulled unconscious girls shoot today. We both lived. Here's the thing. If you knock yourself out pursuing what it is Jesus has called you to pursue, here's the greatest news of all. You don't do it alone because you turn around and realize the one you are pursuing has spent all of eternity pursuing you first at the cost of his own life. And we, as the church of Jesus Christ, get to tell the world this good news. That all you have to do is just turn the slightest direction towards pursuing God with all of your being. And guess what? You will find out He has been there the entire time already pursuing you. Church, run to Him. Father God, that is our prayer. That with all of our being, all of our souls, all of our resources, we give everything to pursue you first and invite the world to pursue you as well. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving everything. You did die, and then you live so that we might live the abundant life you've called us to. We pray this in the glorious, resurrected name of Jesus. Amen. Why not you stand?